You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Acts 14, if you don't mind. Acts chapter 14. We're continuing to walk through this book. I hope, uh, I hope that uh, you're, you're sticking with me. Uh, one of the difficulties in, in where we're going to be from this point on is where all the places that Paul's going to go. And one of the difficulties in reading the book of Acts is, is we read it, again, chronologically, and, and it's laid out that way, of course, but we forget about all the travels that Paul, Barnabas, his contemporaries are doing from chapter to chapter, paragraph to paragraph. I mean, you read from one place where he's, he's over here in, in Antioch and Pisidia, and next thing you know, he's over in Iconium, and then next thing you know, he's in Lystra. And, and you, you, you fail to realize all the mileage that Paul is traveling. By the time we get done today, uh, Paul will have finished his first missionary journey, and I'm going to let you know how many miles he's traveled. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll get your attention. As a matter of fact, this is the shortest of the three missionary journeys that he's going to go on. So each one after this gets bigger and bigger and more distances traveled and more areas are reached. Acts chapter 14. Let's take a look at this text together. I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read the first uh, seven verses and, and then we're going to pray. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they, being Paul and Barnabas, learned of it, fled to Lystra and to Derbe, these uh, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Father in heaven, what we're going to see today in your word is not only Paul entering into an area that is going to be very different than where he's been thus far, but what we're also going to see, Father, is a commitment, a steadfastness to the gospel. The Father, word after word, verse after verse, what we're going to see through the remainder of this book is incredible persecution, incredible pain. We're going to see the apostles fleeing for their lives. We're going to see your hand working and moving and opening doors in areas where the gospel has never been. But Father, what we are going to see is a steadfastness in the men and the women that you had set apart to make disciples. Father, in an age and a culture in which we live, with things each and every day getting worse, just as you told us that it would, as we get closer and closer to the return of our King, Father, we must stand fast. We must have our feet established upon your word. We must be grounded in what is true. For Father, there are doctrines trying to blow us everywhere, to and fro. There are beliefs. There are false gods. 
There are people who are vying for our attention, hoping that the church of Jesus Christ will just fade into the background. So, Father, may we be steadfast, unmovable, upon your word, upon your truth, empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit, yielded to him in complete obedience and surrender, standing upon the truth that only the only truth that really matters, the only truth that we have. Father, we love you. We thank you for our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Paul is entering into Lystra. Now, what you need to know about Lystra is this is going to be the first place that Paul is going to enter where there is no Jewish presence whatsoever. Historians tell us that in able to have a synagogue in any particular city, you had to have 10 Jewish males, at least 10 people who were Jews who were willing to establish a synagogue. So up until this point, everywhere that Paul has been, even in Iconium, when Paul goes there, there is a Jewish synagogue. And it was natural for Paul and Barnabas to go into that Jewish synagogue and to begin to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. So when they would go into these synagogues, Paul and Barnabas knew that they had a starting point in which to, to proclaim the gospel. You had a group of people who believed in one God. That God was Jehovah God, the same God that, that Barnabas and Paul believed and followed and put their faith in. They, they understood that the people inside that synagogue believed that the Old Testament, as we have it today, was God's truth, God's word. They believed in the prophets. They were looking for a Messiah. They, they knew that, that that Messiah was going to come and establish a kingdom. So when, when Paul and Barnabas enter into a synagogue, they had a common ground in which to begin to talk about Jesus. But when they go to Lystra, there is no Jewish synagogue, which means there was not even 10 Jewish households in Lystra. So when Paul goes there, you're going to see, and you're going to see it again when he goes into Athens. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of connection between Paul's ministry in Lystra and Derby, and Paul's ministry in Athens and the people that he's going to interact with. And what Paul is going to have to do is not only defend the reality that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus died on the cross, and Jesus resurrected, but before Paul can even get to Jesus, Paul is going to have to defend the concept of one God named Jehovah. He's going to have to start where those people are. Turn over to 1 Peter 3.15. I, I want to I take a look at 1 Peter real quickly. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter gives us a command, a precept, a principle in which we are to follow concerning when, when we enter into the public square and more than likely today in Lumberton, of all places in the world, here right here in the Southern Bible Belt where there's churches on every corner, if you begin to engage this community with the gospel, more than likely today you are going to meet people who have no working understanding or knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. They are not going to know that He is the Messiah. They are not going to know that He is the Savior of the world. They are not going to know that He is the King who's going to soon return. More than likely, the people you're going to engage in this community have no understanding whatsoever of the gospel. So the question becomes, where do you start? 
Look at what 1 Peter has to say to us about how we are to do this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. He says, now, there is, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, one of the common themes all throughout the New Testament, from Jesus' teachings to John's teachings, Paul, Peter, all the way through the Bible, especially the New Testament, you're going to find the concept of that when you follow Jesus, suffering follows. When you follow Jesus, when you become one of his disciples, suffering is the natural result of that. Now, I don't know what you were told when you put your faith in Jesus. I don't know what you heard about following Jesus. Maybe you heard the idea that, that when you follow Jesus, everything's going to be perfect and fine and you'll never have any problems. Well, I'm sorry. That is not supported by Scripture. Jesus described following him as taking up a cross. Taking up a cross doesn't give any kind of imagery where life is going to be easy. Peter says that you will suffer for righteous sake, but you will be blessed. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them. Who are, who are the ones that he's calling them? He's talking about those who don't follow Jesus, those that you've been commanded to go back to, those who are in darkness. Where you once were, they still are. And we are called to go back to where they are. He says, have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord as holy. And here it is. Always being prepared to make a defense. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, so Peter says that we are to make a defense. In the Greek, that is one word, apologia. It's where we get the concept of, of, a, of a theological term or a, a principle called apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. It's not that we become a know-it-all. Even Peter says right here that we've got to be careful that when we're defending the gospel that we don't get into the mode of thinking that that it's about winning an argument. But we do it with gentleness, we do it with respect, we do it with love, but at the end of the day, we must offer a defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reason we follow him. How do you deal with questions such as, how do you know that Jesus is sinless? Uh, just last week, Don Lemon on CNN said that Jesus was a sinner just like everyone else. You've been told and you've heard in church for years that Jesus is sinless. How do you as an individual defend that with Scripture? If someone, if someone on your job comes up to you and says, hey, I heard on CNN this week that, that Jesus committed sin, what do you think about that? Now, and the first thing you're going to say is, no, Jesus was absolutely perfect. And then they're going to ask this question, how do you know? Here's another one that I've heard quite a bit lately. The Bible talks a whole lot about slavery. Did you know that? If you, if, you, if you walk through just the New Testament, if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find it there as well. That the Old Testament and the New Testament talk a lot about slavery, but what's interesting is, especially when you get to Paul's epistles, you don't see anywhere where Paul says that slavery itself is a sin. So therefore, if the Bible doesn't condemn it, Paul doesn't condemn it, is the Bible a racist book? 
you got that question, how would you defend your position? How would you argue? How would you defend? Third, third thing to think about. Um, when I was working in secular work, I had a lot of people from different religions in the plant that I worked in. And what I found interesting was, especially from people who were Jehovah Witnesses, uh, I had some atheists that worked there. It seemed to me like they were very quick to speak up about what they believed, while those who put their faith in Jesus were often very quiet. I wonder why that is. Peter says we must be ready to defend. We must be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Well, maybe, maybe your answer so far has been when somebody says, is Jesus sinless? And you say, no, or is Jesus a sinner? And then you say, no, Jesus was absolutely perfect and sinless. And then the person says, well, how do you know that? And, and maybe your, your response was, well, that's what I've been told. Or that, that's what I just feel is right. Well, that's what the Baptists believe. Peter says, you must give a defense. Paul is going to have to give a defense in an area where there is no presence of people who believe in Jehovah God. He is going into the first territory where he has no common ground to begin, such as he's had with the synagogues, the people who are Jews, that he had an instant connection with. Paul is being run out of every town he goes into. He, he just got ran out of Antioch and Pisidia. Even though God was moving there, even though, even though God was calling people to himself, there comes a time where Paul decides that he's got to get out of town. It's not because he gives up on defending the gospel. It just gets to a point where the people are in such a fury that the gospel can no longer be effectively shared. So what does Paul and Barnabas do? Well, they head southeast to, to Iconium. They get to Iconium, and, and then all of a sudden, the Jews stir up the Gentiles, and they poison their minds, and the next thing you know, Things are getting out of control, and they're, gonna, they're going to stone Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas hear about it. So they head even further to the south and to the east, to Lystra and Derbe. Now they're in the area of Galatia that we know that, that Paul planted these churches in this area. That's the area they're in, in Asia Minor. And Paul keeps going further and further into these areas, and now he's found himself in a place where there is no Jewish presence whatsoever. So how are they going to make disciples in an area that knows nothing of Jesus, knows nothing of God the Father, knows nothing of the Trinity, knows nothing of salvation and resurrection, atoning death? How are they going to begin? How would you begin? I would offer to you that that's more than likely where you're going to find yourself in the job, in this community you begin to bring Jesus up. I think you're going to find more in common with Paul at Lystra than you're going to find in common with Paul anywhere else where he has that Jewish presence. I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds odd. But in our community today, especially the younger you get, more than likely, they're not going to have any understanding of Jesus or the gospel. All that they have is what they're hearing told in the news about the church, about Jesus. And can you imagine the great gulf that divides you from the person who only knows as much as he's hearing or she's hearing in the news about, about the church? You know what they're hearing about the church right now? It's just a matter of time before this gets to be the, the snowball that's rolling down the hill that the church of Jesus Christ is 
racist to its core. We're already starting to hear a little bit of that. We're already seeing across the country where cathedrals and churches are being destroyed. And I would offer out of complete ignorance of, of what the church is to be about and what the church is and what the church represents. How are you going to give a defense for the hope that is within you? Let's take a look at verse 8. Pick it up in verse 8. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing what he had, or seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice. So Paul and Barnabas enter into Lystra. Paul was very observant in any town that he went into, and no doubt Paul probably was already aware that there was no Jewish presence in Lystra. Either he talked to people in Iconium, but he probably knew when he walked into that community, he's walking into a place that is very dark, very secular, with no presence of Jehovah God as far as a synagogue or otherwise. Now, I find it very interesting that the first thing that Paul does when he walks into this Gentile community is he runs into a guy who has been crippled or lame in his feet since birth. As a matter of fact, up until this point, the places that we've seen Paul going, we haven't heard a lot about miraculous works. Paul goes in, he goes to the synagogue, he he proclaims Jesus as Messiah, that Jesus is resurrected, that they must repent and believe. That's what we've seen up until this point. But all of a sudden, when he goes into a Gentile community that has no representation of God or the gospel, what is the first thing that Paul does? He heals an outcast. Now, do you think that that's happenstance? So so if Paul is going to go into this area and he wants to be able to connect with people, be able to bring up the gospel, makes sense to me that the first thing Paul would do is meet the needs of one of the most vulnerable people in that community. This is the first principle. If we're going to try to reach folks in this community who have no understanding of Jesus and may even have some hatred towards the church, one of the first things that we need to do is find some of the most vulnerable people, broken people, addicted people, people who have given up all hope and begin to minister and love those folks unconditionally. That's exactly what Paul does here. And don't you know, This community was watching what Paul was doing. This community has been walking by this guy for years. This community has shown no love and no care for this guy whatsoever, even though they have plenty of gods that they worship. Find out about that shortly. They're worshiping gods that are no gods at all. And those gods have made no difference in their life whatsoever. But Paul, who represents Jehovah God, who is a disciple of Jesus Christ, makes it a point as the first thing he does in this Gentile city is help a guy who nobody cared anything about. Do you think that the world takes notice when a Christ follower loves someone unconditionally? Did you know that that's what Jesus said sets us apart from the rest of the world is the way we love? Maybe maybe the answer to the issues that we're seeing today in our world with all this division, all the hatred, maybe the ministry of the local church 
is not to get a megaphone and yell at people. Maybe, maybe it's to go across the street and love the outcast. Maybe it's, maybe it's running after the one that everyone else is trampling over. Paul, as soon as he goes into this city, sees a guy. He's been lame since birth. There's a verse here that really gets my attention. Every time I see this verse, it says that Paul, looking intently in him, seeing that he had faith to be made well. What does that mean? Paul saw something in this guy that made Paul think that when, when Paul extends a hand to him for him to stand, that he would in fact stand. I mean, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big step for, for a guy who's been lame for his entire life that when a guy that he doesn't even know walks up and says, rise, stand and walk, that he's actually going to do it. Paul saw something in him, and I think what Paul saw was God's work in this man's life. So Paul heals, of course God heals through Paul, a guy that no one else cared about in front of the community. Now, of course, the whole community is like, wait a minute, what is this? It got their attention. I think the first principle in reaching people in this community who know nothing about Jesus is that we love the most vulnerable. That we love them. We're not loving them to get something from them. We're not loving them to, to get them to become members of our church. We're not loving them to get them to tithe to this church. We're loving them because Jesus said to love them and to meet the needs that they have in their life. Does that mean we go out and, and we can find someone who is lame in their legs and we try to heal them? Or does it mean that person who has no food in their cupboard, that we go buy them groceries? Does it mean that that single mom, that single mom right now, that single mom who has a couple of kids who is absolutely freaking out right now because she doesn't know what the school system's going to do. Her job that she works during the day is completely dependent upon her children being able to go to school all day. And with all that she's hearing about what might happen in the school system, she is shutting down because she doesn't know how she's going to be able to go to work to support her family and yet make sure her kids are taken care of. There are single moms that are going to have to leave their small children at home while they go to work. Is there a need that you can meet there? Is there a way that you can show some love there? Is there a way that you can step into that single mom or that single dad's life and say, hey, I understand what you're going through. Is there a way I could help? Secondly, notice what Paul does here. He's going to begin where they are spiritually. Look where they are spiritually. So in the crowds, verse 11, saw what they had done. They were speaking in their own language, a Lyconian language, and they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. That is the craziest thing. We're going to see some crazy stuff that Paul has to deal with in the weeks ahead, but this is, this is, this is crazy stuff. So here's what happens. The crowd sees that Paul heals a guy who's been lame from birth, and instead of responding, hey, what God are you serving? I mean, who, who do you serve? What, how did you get that kind of power? 
You know what they do? They say that, that Paul and Barnabas are actually Greek gods that have come down to walk among them. Now you have to understand a little bit of historical context here. That in this particular area, there was a, there was a story that had been shared for years. No doubt these people had heard it. That the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, thousands of years before or hundreds of years before Paul shows up, had come down and walked among the people. And what these two Greek gods were doing was going house to house looking for someone to show them favor. And everybody's house that they went to, they would just shut the door in the face of these two men, not knowing that it was the two Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. So they go house to house. They go to a thousand houses in this community, and nobody gives them anything. Well, eventually they make it to the house of this poor couple who have very little living in a little grass hut. And because this poor couple who has very little welcome these two men in, whom they don't know to be Hermes and Zeus, welcomes them into their house, gives them the little bit of food that they had left, not knowing who they really were, not knowing their true identity, and, and gives of all that they had, shelters them. Well, of course, after that, these two gods reveal themselves to this couple, turn their home into a temple, and then when the two people pass away, they were turned into trees growing in front of the temple to live forever as trees. Now, does that just sound ludicrous and crazy? Yeah, let's all shake our heads. That's a little loud. But that story had been passed around for years and years and years. So here comes Paul and Barnabas. Paul is the outspoken one. Barnabas is the tall, regal-looking guy. They come in, and the first thing they do is heal a guy who's been lame his entire life. You know what the community does? <gasps> Zeus and Hermes is back. And they'd heard the story, and they're thinking, oh, we better honor them. If we don't honor them, then we won't get blessed. We won't get a nice temple. We won't get gold and jewelry. We, we, we better take care of them because... Zeus and Hermes has shown back up. Notice how Paul and Barnabas respond. It took a while for Paul and Barnabas to figure this out because the language they're speaking, they don't really understand. So the next thing you know, all these, the whole community is like up in arms about how awesome Paul and Barnabas are. And I would wonder if as they're hearing this Lyconian language, they hear Zeus and Hermes, Zeus and Hermes over and over again. Well, I think it's when the priest comes out, the priest of Zeus and Hermes comes out and begins to offer an animal on behalf of Paul and Barnabas. They're worshiping Paul and Barnabas. Notice what they do. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, this is verse 14, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? Did you know this is one of the only places I can find where Paul rips his garments out of distress? He is so tore up about the fact that what was meant to turn people to God, to turn people to the one true God, has now turned into worship of them. And I would offer to you that this is just as much a spiritual warfare and spiritual attack as what we've seen when they get run out of town. Let me explain. See, our pride that all of us struggle with loves to be puffed up. We love it when people pat us on the back. We love it when people idolize us. Paul and Barnabas are in a place right now where they could have really enjoyed the fact they're being worshipped. But what do they do? They speak. Broken. Verse 15. He says, Ben, why are you doing these things? 
we also are men of nature, like nature. We're, we're, in other words, we're human beings just like you. And we bring you good news. And he says, you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now notice what Paul's doing here. Everywhere else we've seen Paul, the first thing Paul does is immediately begins to bring Jesus up. He immediately begins to talk about the resurrected Lord in those Jewish synagogues who should be worshipped, who should be believed, and, and should cause you to want to repent and turn. What you're going to find interesting here is he doesn't mention Jesus at all. Why is that? It's because of the second principle I want you to know. The first principle is, is meet the needs of the most vulnerable. The second principle I want you to see is they begin where these people are spiritually. You've got to begin where that person is spiritually. What do I mean by that? What does that person believe? How do they view the world? What do they think about God? What do they think about the church? Where are they? Do they have no idea who Jesus is, or have they heard the gospel 15 times, and they know exactly who Jesus is? They just haven't repented. Paul is going to start where these people are. And where does he start? By drawing a contrast between the vain things that they're putting their faith in versus the one true God. He says, turn from these vain things. Turn from what vain things? By believing that Paul and Barnabas are gods, Greek gods. Greek gods that can provide nothing to you. Greek gods that can do nothing in your life. Greek gods that have no bearing upon your life whatsoever. Paul says it's vanity, it's useless, it's a waste of your time. But I'm here to tell you about a living God. And notice what he does. The first thing that he does is he presents God as creator, the creator of the universe. He says, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is within them. Paul begins where, begins where they are. And he simply begins with, there is a God, he's alive, and he created everything that you see. He starts with creation. There is going to be many, many people in this community or wherever you go, where you start begin to, to be a witness, but you're going to have to start right here. Oftentimes what I'll do is if I meet someone for the first time and we're getting together to talk about the gospel, we're getting together to have a conversation, oftentimes where I'll start is I'll just simply ask them, how did we all get here? It's one of those big life questions, right? How did everything get here? How did all those stars get in the sky? How did that big blazing ball of sun get put right in the right place and the, the planets orbiting around the sun. How did all this get here? And I want to know what that person believes about our origin. Oftentimes, is we are all here because of a cosmic accident. There is no God. It just happened. And that gives me a great place to begin to have a conversation about well, if, if we're all just an accident, then what purpose do we serve? That's the other big life question, right? If, if, if I'm here and this planet is here simply by, by sheer mistake, that it was simply a, a cosmic accident, that this all came together, that there is no God who caused it to be, then, then what is my real life purpose? What, why am I here? Why are you here? What are, we, what are we doing with our 70, 80, 90, 100 years of our life? Do we just, we just live 100 years, work ourselves to death, and then die and rot in a grave? Is there not more purpose to life? That person on the other side of that table struggling with that exact question. Paul starts where they are. 
Not only does he start with creation, but notice what else he says. He says that God is providentially and patiently in control. He says, verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. In that one statement, Paul makes a statement to these, these people in Lystra that God is sovereignly in control. Not only is he alive, not only did he create the universe, but he is actively involved. You know why that's an important thing for them to hear? Because they believe their Greek gods are off somewhere in some heaven place with no connection. And the only time that the gods had any connection with humans is when they wanted to come down and destroy them. Or when the gods got in a war among themselves and that war spilled over into humanity. But the gods are separate from humanity. The gods are separate from creation. The gods are off doing their own thing, living their own life, and they could care less about you. Paul says, no. He's in control. That he has allowed nations to walk, live. So not only has he a, is he a creator, and not only has he been patiently guiding all history and time, but he also has given a witness. Notice this. It says, but he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul notices that they've got plenty of food. Paul notices that their harvests have been good. Paul notices that this city, Lystra, is pretty well off. They're doing pretty well. So, so Paul says, no, it was Jehovah God that provided that for you, that he has provided himself a witness to you. What kind of witness has God provided? Well, when you put a seed in the ground and that seed gets watered and that seed comes up and that seed provides fruit and vegetables and inside those fruit and vegetables are more seeds for you to replant, who's in control of all that? They thought the Greek gods were. He says, no, it's a living God. That God has provided himself a witness. What kind of witness about God do we have? Well, we have creation. How in the world all of this come to be with all the order, design, beauty? How is it that we've got billions and billions and trillions of stars and at the same time a cell that has DNA in it replicate that is the foundation all how how can we have such a scope of beauty and creation intelligence just come to be how could it be only through telling all knowing God spoke in Paul says to these people God has left himself a witness and that witness is speaking that witness is crying out to you. That witness of creation, that witness is speaking. But we also, we, we are the recipients of an incredible, incredible witness. This book. That this book is unlike anything on the face of the earth. That There is no book ever that has the evidence and the support that this book has. No matter where you look, no matter what study you do, if you do it and you look at it from legitimate sources that are not trying to to introduce lies, if you look at the reality of how we got this book, you'll have to come to the conclusion that there's something about this book that makes it more than just a book. It's miraculous. We also have the witness of Jesus Christ. We, we have the, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, and we have his life documented in this book, not only in this book, but there are other historians 
that document atheist historians, historians who have no Christian faith whatsoever, document the fact that Jesus Christ was a living, breathing person. Walked on this earth. Tell you what else they all agree to. That three days after he was buried, something happened. Historians write that something happened. Now, they won't go so far as to say that Jesus came back to life. They try to explain it as though he, when he was put in there, he wasn't really dead and he came out on his own. The, the disciples stole his body. There's all kinds of theories. But they all agree that something happened on that day, on that third day. Could that be a witness to a living God who is active in his creation? I think so. So the first principle is, is that we love the vulnerable. We love the outcast. Meet those needs in the life of that outcast. Because Jesus said we'll be known by our love. Secondly, we start where people are. Start where they are. Start where they are on this and, and, and where they are in the world, and whether they're absolutely completely atheistic, start there. Or maybe they've heard the gospel, they just haven't responded. We'll start there. Your job as a disciple of Jesus in the Great Commission is to help that person take one more step, one more step closer to Jesus, one more step towards the cross, one more step towards repentance, one more step towards faith. That is your calling. You may only see him once. You may have 15 coffee meetings with him. Paul gives us a third principle. Look at verse 19. Now, after Paul says all this, they still keep worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They still try to offer sacrifices. So it's a work in progress, right? When you, when you enter into the culture, whatever that culture is, it's a work in progress. Paul, Paul understands that. Verse 19, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. These Jews that, that were inflamed in Iconium and all the way back in Pisidia, they have gotten together and they've traveled a hundred miles, a hundred miles to kick Paul out of Lystra. You've got to have some deep-seated hatred to go through that much walking and traveling simply to oppose a guy you disagree with. They Now listen, the Jews are going into Lystra. They've never been there. There's no Jewish presence there. But now by their hatred of Paul, they're going to go into Lystra. It says the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they began to persuade the crowds. Notice this. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. There are several commentators. If you read a commentary on this particular, you'll find a, a difference of opinion. Some commentators believe that Paul did die on this day, that Paul was stone cold dead, that God raised him back to life. There are others who believe that, that he was in bad, bad shape, that he was almost near death, that he had not died, but, but miraculously, God does provide the strength for him to keep going. So whether he died or whether he didn't, I don't think is the, the point. Verse 20 is the point. Verse 20 is the point. But when the disciples gathered around him, they're, they're standing around Paul's lifeless body, he is beaten, he is bruised, no doubt he's got bones broken, his face has been mangled, he's all swollen up, and they're standing around, they're not seeing any life in him. And I would imagine the disciples are thinking, maybe Paul is dead. Notice what happens. 
And it's a simple phrase, but my goodness, how much power there is in this phrase. He rose up, and he entered the city where he had just been stoned. Now, do you think that's crazy? Yeah, I do. I think it's nuts. We're going to see this multiple times with Paul. That's not because Paul was physically strong. It's because God empowered him. He rose up. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Here's the point. Third principle, not giving up when things get hard. Did you know that one of the most powerful testimonies you're going to have to your lost friends and family is not giving up? Not charging God with evil because things are not going the way you want them to go? That that you're not shaking your fist at God? That that even in the worst moments, you say that God be the glory for great things He has done? I will not curse Him. I will not turn my back on Him. It doesn't matter how bad this gets. It doesn't matter if my life ends. I will not give up. Did you know that that is one of the most powerful testimonies to the people who are watching your life when things get hard? And make no mistake about it. Things get hard is when people watch. You know why they do? Because in their mind, you're believing in a fable. In their mind, you're you're following something that's not real. So if it's not real, then it would make perfectly good sense that when things get hard, we're just going to give that up because you will not lay down your life for a fable. You will not lay your life down for a lie, but you will lay your life down for the Christ who gave his life for you. If that's real, if Jesus is alive and your eternity is set and you've got a place in heaven and your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life, then there will be nothing, absolutely nothing in this life that will deter you from following him. And what an incredible testimony that is to people who are watching. Don't give up. Far too many have. And when they do, it fuels Community's perspective. Yeah, just what I thought. There's nothing to follow in Jesus. There's nothing to follow in Jesus. Fourth and final principle we see in Paul reaching a community that knows nothing about God. He had good follow-up and follow-through. Follow-up and follow-through. Paul then goes all the way through and he goes to Derby and then eventually he begins to return and go back through the same towns he just come out of. Look at verse 21. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city, that's in Derby, had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, then to Iconium and Antioch. Again, nuts. These are the people who've been trying to kill him. Where does he go? He goes right back. He goes right back to the same areas. So here's what's happening. Paul has reached Derby and now he's turned around and he's going back through all of these cities that he's been to where he's made disciples. And look what he's doing. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples. Paul is pulling them together. He's teaching them. He's preparing them. He's giving them a reason for the hope that is within them. He's helping them to then stand strong and then to tell others about Jesus. He's strengthening the souls of the disciples. He's also encouraging them to continue. There it is. Paul says, I'm continuing. I've been stoned. Look at the scars. Look at the bruises I'm still healing from. I've been beat down, but I'm continuing. You've got to continue as well. Paul would have had no grounds to teach these disciples to continue in many tribulations, it says here. He says, continue in the faith through many tribulations. Paul would have had no credibility if he had quit because things got hard. He says to them, continue in the faith. He says that he was appointing 
elders for them in every church. You see, Paul knows that he's going he's gonna to move on to other cities. So he disciples people, he teaches them the lead, and the churches are established, and he moves on to the next community. And these churches continue to spread the gospel, make disciples, and they continue to be steadfast. Follow up, follow through. That person that you start that conversation with, when's the last time you talked with them? Have you reached out to them? Have you talked to them anymore? Have, have, you, have you had another opportunity to sit down and talk about what they believe, what you believe, and give a defense for the hope that is within you? Have you followed up with them? Maybe they've already come to faith in Christ, and maybe they've got baptized. Maybe they've got plugged into a ch- another church. That's great. When's the last time you followed up with them? Are they still following Jesus, or have they given up? You see, discipleship is more. Evangelism is more. Discipleship is more than just getting them across the line and getting them dipped in water. There's more, much more. And Paul understood that. And Paul said that if these folks are going to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, they've got to be established. They've got to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within them. Paul traveled 1,581 miles of 53 days on his first mission. He was beat up, hated, cost a lot of money to do this trip. We often don't think about that, but it did. cost quite a bit of money to do all this traveling that he did. Why did he do it? For people who were in Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, whatever. He, he did it because there were people there who needed to know, both Jews and Gentiles. Paul says that there are people who have no idea what you and we must go to them. Give a defense for the faith, hope that is in us. Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared? Are you ready? Do you feel confident? If not, maybe something else has got our attention. Maybe, maybe something else has our attention. Maybe we're just too busy with life and too busy with stuff that it's not really on our radar at all. You know the one thing that Jesus is going to hold you accountable to when you stand before him? The one thing that's going to come up, what did you do? What I gave you. The moment you came to faith in Christ, the moment you left that world, you came and you stood before me. What did you do with what I gave you? Maybe that's a question we need to be asking right now. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for your goodness and thank you for your grace. Father, I, I am thankful that we have your word, confidence that comes along with it to stand upon the truth. Father, you said that we are to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we are to love you with our mind. We are to love you by going deeper in your word, being prepared to give a, a defense for what we believe. And do so with love and kindness and gentleness, but to do so. Father, we're far too busy. And in our busyness, we're failing to do what you've called us to do. So, Father, may these principles of Paul, as he goes into this broken city, become the principles that we use when we walk out these doors today. That we love the most vulnerable among us, that everyone else is forgotten about. That we start where people are. That we 
we bring you up as the single force in our life that's made all the difference. That we not give up. Persevere. Be steadfast. And that we continue to follow up and follow through with these folks. We don't just cast them aside. We truly love them. Love them enough to get involved in their life. Father, if there's anything missing in our lives during this time of commitment, may you point it out and may we repent. Asking in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.